0: We are back before we talk to chris mooney i want to just insert an item here that i pulled uh on another thing from the economist we spoke some weeks back with andrew nangalama about the situation in uganda regarding hiv aids and i think i just have to mention the following story that uh, uganda has been doing rather well in the matter of hiv yawari Museveni, president since 1986 has uh, come forward with an ABC program to fight HIV-AIDS. A being abstain, B faithful, use a condom as C. And infection rates in Uganda fell from 18% in the 1980s to just 6% in 2003. But it appears that the infection rate is climbing because Museveni and his wife are promoting A at the expense of C. Museveni made a speech last year strongly attacking condoms. Primary school children, of course, are the the target of of this ad. They were no longer to be taught about condoms, which are no longer prominent in public advertisements. At the same time, the president's wife, who is a vocal evangelical Christian and condom basher, funds pro-abstinence and pro-fidelity posters and radio spots, and she's called for a census of virgins in the country. Bolstering all of this is uh, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, P-E-P-F-A-R, President meaning George Bush. This is an American aid program which explicitly promotes abstinence and has pumped more than $230 million to the country since 2003. Uganda, say critics, is dancing to America's tune. Joining us now to talk about the disputes which have erupted between America's scientific community and the Republican Party, currently in control of the executive and legislative branches of government, is science writer Chris Mooney, Washington, D.C. correspondent for Seed magazine. Chris Mooney has written for Mother Jones, The Washington Post, Slate, The American Prospect, and numerous other publications. We should note that earlier this year, he wrote that a Category 4 or 5 hurricane could devastate New Orleans. His timely book, the Republican War on Science is in stores currently. In it, he details how politics underlies the scientific conflicts we see in our daily news over things like global warming, creationism, stem cell research, reproductive issues, and who sits on scientific advisory panels, and even what level of certainty regulatory bodies need to act. One may also go to the website waronscience.com for more information. We certainly agree with the book's premise that certain people are using bad signs to justify their political goals. We think it's worth talking about an administration which famously has been quoted as disdaining the, quote, reality-based community, unquote. Chris Mooney has appeared in The Daily Show to talk about his work, and he joins us from Caltech, where he is on book tour. Chris Mooney, welcome to Radio Parallax.
1: It's a pleasure to be here.
0: We mentioned a moment ago that American efforts in Uganda to induce a denial— in HIV prevention programs that condoms work is wreaking havoc. Is, is this not a classic example of the war on science that you've written about, ideology, in this case religious views, masquerading as a scientific stand?
1: Sure. The um, the attack on the use of condoms and the defense of abstinence only until marriage education or education programs is really part of the Christian right's moral agenda, but the problem is that they're misusing science in order to justify this moral agenda. So they claim that these abstinence programs work when they defy all common sense to, you know, because not all teens are going to abstain. And if you don't teach them about contraception, then some of them are going to be vulnerable. So how is this, how is this program possibly going to work? And of course, there's no good evidence to suggest that they work. And as part of this, they um, exaggerate the failure rates of condoms. So they're misusing science there as well.
0: Yes, noting that if they don't work perfectly, then they're, they're claiming that they don't work, which is quite, quite a different matter.
1: Sure. Uh, you know, they, they don't work well enough for the Christian right. <laughs>
0: In New Scientist magazine, September 10th issue, to be exact, there was a full-page commentary analysis by you in which you noted that when science comes under attack in the U.S., the interests of the Christian right and or industry are implicated. Can we talk about how the war on science is really about that coalition of red states that dates back to the Reagan era?
1: Sure, definitely. I think that's what's driving the crisis that we now see over the political misuse of science by our government, by the Bush administration. If you look at all the case studies, global warming, mercury pollution, uh, sexual health like we talked about, evolution, and you trace back to what's motivating these attacks on science, you're going to find that either the interests of regulated industry or the interests of religious conservatives are at stake virtually every time. There are a few that don't fit nicely into one of the two categories. And these are, of course, the key constituencies of a modern conservative movement in the United States and today's Republican Party. So it all fits.
0: It certainly does. Um, And speaking of Reagan, um, which you'd mentioned in the book, his lack of scientific sophistication uh, sort of allowed a lot of his his anti-science bias to develop. But this really came out of Barry Goldwater's run for the presidency in 64. Can you back to that that time uh, in in our political history when when this anti-intellectual bias of GOP conservatives really came bubbling forth?
1: Absolutely. Well, Barry Goldwater is the first Republican president who's really a conservative president, because the Republican Party used to be more moderate. And so this was the the early stage of the modern conservative movement in America. And it's really interesting that not only was the Goldwater movement accused of being very anti-intellectual in the sense of distrusting the Eastern Intelligentsia and and, uh, some of the nation's leading universities, but also, in fact, the Goldwater campaign came into a huge clash with the nation's scientific community, and the scientists denounced Goldwater for essentially being trigger-happy with nuclear weapons. So it's an interesting prelude to the crisis that we're now seeing under another conservative president, George W. Bush, who's also completely fallen out with the nation's scientific community.
0: I should note as an aside, Chris, that uh, that I watched very carefully at age 11 in, in 1964 the Goldwater versus uh, Rockefeller uh, California campaign, which was pivotal to what happened that year. And I remember with great dismay watching the, uh, the arch-conservatives of Orange County and L.A. County turn the tide for Barry Goldwater. So for me, this really goes way back uh, a long way.
1: Wow. I wasn't around then, but it must have been <laughs> something to watch.
0: Yeah. I find it curious that you wrote about writer Bruce Chapman, who argued vociferously against that right wing of the Republican Party in the 60s. Ironically, he's now spearheading the so-called intelligent design efforts in, the US, polit- in, in U.S. politics.
1: Right. He's really symbolic uh, of the change in Republicanism. Here's a guy who was a moderate Republican. Who was saying that the goldwater movement was going too far and specifically saying it was going too far because it was alienating the nation's intellectuals and that the republican party needed those people in order to devise workable policies and now this guy, he became more much more conservative during the Reagan years, apparently, and now he's leading the uh, newly born, or newly rejuvenated in any case, attack on evolution. So it really is a total uh, transition, because of course, attacking evolution, evolution is one of the greatest intellectual achievements that we have today. It explains where the human species come from, sure. comes from. So it answers one of the most profound questions around.
0: Yes, here at UC Davis at one point we had two of the world's leading evolutionary biologists here, Theodosius Dobzhansky and G. Ledyard-Stebbins, on the st- on the fact Faculty at the same time so uh, it's, a, it's especially telling for I think this campus to see what's what's currently out there in the debate.
1: And I think Dovansky actually famously said if I remember the quote right something to the effect of nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution.
0: It's hard to argue with that. The, the British and, and indeed the rest of the world seem baffled by the Bush administration's refusal to acknowledge that even like global warming is taking place let alone the fight over creationism. Um, Do you sense shock reactions from European scientists when you interview them?
1: Yes, and the European media, which has actually been very interested in my book because they are so baffled by the united states and for them they find the evolution fight more of a curiosity and an oddity and something that amuses them but they actually are really worried about the global warming issue because of course the united states is uh, producing so many, so many greenhouse gases and we don't seem to be taking this issue seriously like the rest of the world so uh... they are either baffled or alarmed and in some cases both and certainly the climate change issue is the one that gets them geared up the most and there the bush administration has moved a little bit. They used to just selectively cite uncertainty in order to justify inaction, which is a misrepresentation of the science and a misuse of science. Now, if you push them into a corner, they may acknowledge uh, that that something's going on. But at the same time, we have allegations of members of the administration trying to doctor climate change documents and suppress references to key scientific reports. So, uh, you know, I think that they're playing a kind of good cop, bad cop game.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about that. I had a chance to interview Sir David King when I was sitting in over at the NPR affiliate last month. He's the chief scientific advisor to Tony Blair. It was so refreshing to hear him talk about, you know, the fact of global warming and what we needed to do about it. Can you talk about how much uh, energy is being um, devoted in the U.S. through PR firms and right-wing think tanks to just simply manufacturing doubt?
1: That is the strategy here, and it is a strategy that goes at least back to the tobacco industry and manufacturing doubt about... um, whether their products are causing uh, lung cancer or other serious conditions. And it's really translated into at least some fossil fuel companies. And I want to say that not all fossil fuel companies are doing this, but some are. And the way that it plays out is that there are a lot of conservative think tanks and advocacy groups uh, in D.C. and elsewhere who are very devoted to basically attacking (laughs) each new scientific study of, of major significance that comes out on global warming and to presenting a very contrary take on the science. And, of course, they have allies, a couple of skeptical scientists. Michael Crichton is now an ally of theirs. And sure enough, this, uh, this contrarian take, which misrepresents the mainstream conclusions of the scientific community, is, has made its way into um, the policy-making circles through Republican politicians who echo these very questionable arguments, and up to the president himself.
0: We're talking with Chris Mooney, author of The Republican War on Science. Um, Chris, can you talk about the Data Quality Act and and, and how how basically the control of information through even like the Freedom of Information Act have been used to the advantage of industry?
1: Sure. Well, industry's strategy when it comes to fending off government regulation or action by government that would basically affect the bottom line or uh, make them cease doing business as usual and change the way they're doing things has often been to attack the scientific basis for the government action. And that's what they're doing with the Data Quality Act. The Data Quality Act is just a couple short sentences. They were introduced into an appropriations bill by a lobbyist, and the Bush administration has seized upon them in order to rejigger the whole way that the government uses science. So if the government is thinking about using science to take a particular action, say, to restrict uh, use of a chemical or something like that, then you use the Data Quality Act to attack the scientific basis for the information you petition the government uh, with a very lengthy scientific sounding complaint, and they have to reply. So it ties up their hands, and the ultimate goal is to drag this into the courtroom so you can attack the uh, information with well-paid lawyers. And so far it's not clear whether that ploy is going to succeed, but the goal is to slow down the process.
0: I was quite shocked to see in an administration that's doing everything it can to restrict uh, our uh, the citizens' re, uh, ac- access to um, government data that through through FOIA they were allowing industry to get a look at anything that's you know a government published uh, study.
1: This is something that goes back a little further. It's another one of the myriad strategies that industry and its allies have used in order to. Um, find better means of attacking scientific information. so what you're talking about here is the Shelby Amendment, which lets them um, get access to the data underlying publicly funded studies. And of course, you know this, this leads to the potential for a lot of mischief, where first of where people go in and try to reanalyze the data and make it say something that the original scientist didn't think that it said and so forth.
0: Now, uh, Newt Gingrich has done a lot to help the industry by eliminating Congress's, well, back in the 90s, the Office of Technologic Assessment. You talk about that, how that was in retribution for assessments the right didn't like. And uh, you talk about why that happened and why we need that office reestablished?
1: In 1995, the gang of Republicans killed the Office of Technology Assessment. It was a world-renowned scientific advisory body. And it's quite clear that a lot of conservatives didn't like what OTA had to say about the Reagan administration's Star Wars program, namely that uh, we really doubt that it can work. (laughs) And this uh, this, this bothered um, conservatives a lot. Now, the the official rationale for getting rid of OTA was budget-cutting. But that doesn't really fly, I don't think, since it didn't cost very much money in the grand scheme of things. And it probably saved much more money than it cost by, you know, making sure the government didn't waste money on on poor technological approaches and so forth. But um, without this body, Congress really was flying blind. It didn't have scientific advisors. And, you know, it's been clear the lack of information that Congress is bringing to the table on a lot of scientific issues ranging from cloning to bunker-busting nukes. We need, uh, Congress needs to have scientific advisors because without them, basically members of Congress just engage in a a really troubling political game in which they go out and and one-stop shop for their own specific experts, whether at think tanks or from lobbying groups or from special interest groups, and science gets increasingly politicized through this process.
0: The AP reported uh, two days ago that a former top official at the FDA said she thought the decision to not approve the Plan B contraception pill for over-the-counter sales was on orders from On High. Can you talk about David Hager and that 23-4 to vote that he overrode when they were going to make that decision?
1: Sure. You're actually quoting Susan Wood, and I appeared on a panel with her uh, two days ago. She's the FDA whistleblower who has explained that the process by which the FDA decided to block or at least delay approval of Plan B emergency contraception over-the-counter, that this was an unprecedented process and it was a betrayal of both science and um, just standard good administrative rulemaking by an agency. And, you know, it turns out that the scientific advisors to the FDA voted 23 to 4 that this drug was safe and effective and the staff, People like Susan Wood were in full agreement, and it's really unprecedented for the FDA to overrule both the scientific advisors and the staff, but what they did do that, uh, not only did they do that, but they did it on the basis of a minority opinion, and apparently um, the argument that the FDA used, which is a very dubious one, we can talk about that, but it appears to have come from one member who was in the minority vote on the advisory committee, one of the four who were against the 23. So they're cherry-picking a minority opinion to ignore what is the weight of scientific
0: consensus. Yeah, you had a quote from from David Hager I thought was fairly amazing. I argued it from a scientific perspective, and God took that information, and he used it through this minority report to influence the decision. Well, I'm not sure it was God.
1: Well, at least he's humble, and he doesn't take credit for himself. He. (laughs) saves the credit for God. Yeah, this is, this is an individual who was very controversial when he was put on the committee to, the, to begin with. He's essentially the religious rights favorite gynecologist and the author of the book As Jesus Cared for Women. So people were very worried about him mixing uh, religion and medicine to begin with. And sure enough, Uh, It looks like we can't prove for sure why the FDA did what it did, but the FDA articulated the same argument that Hager articulated at the advisory committee meeting, which is we need, quote, more data about how this drug is going to affect younger adolescents. And the scientists who are in the majority have have explained very well why that's an unreasonable request, Um, but it is the request um, and, and the argument that the FDA went with.
0: Now, the Endangered Species Act that you describe in the book what a powerful tool that that is thought to be from a legal standpoint it's under attack currently by Congressman Richard Pombo. Can you talk about it and why it's in the crosshairs?
1: Conservatives have long uh, despised the Endangered Species Act and they have fought it on behalf of their uh, libertarian-leaning Western constituents, including um, various you know developer groups, ranchers. Um, grazing organizations. Basically, anybody who owns a piece of land or has designs upon a piece of land and what they want to do for economic reasons is being impaired by the fact that uh, some some endangered species of some sort uh, live on that land or depend upon that land. So this has been a longstanding campaign. And what's so uh, insidious about it now is that rather than frontal attacks on the act, which they just don't like, they are misrepresenting and actually cloaking what they're trying to do by saying that they're going to make the science work better under the act. Uh, And in fact, they're misdescribing what they're doing, and they're trying to make it harder to use science in order to enforce the act by raising the burden of proof. And of course, you know, it would be great if we could have perfect science all the time, but we can't. The fact is that you have to act sometimes quickly uh, based on incomplete information, because if you don't act, uh, the little, you know, critter that we're talking about could go extinct.
0: You explain at great length in the book of how um, embryonic stem cell research offers much greater potential to mankind than do adult stem cells, yet the Bush administration has tried to claim the opposite. Can you tell us just briefly about that?
1: Sure. Well, this is once again uh, an area where Christian conservatives, the religious right, they've cooked up their own quasi-scientific argument in order to back up uh, what is really a moral agenda. The moral agenda is to oppose embryonic stem cell research, uh, and they they argue it in part by misrepresenting science, so they claim that there's a scientific alternative. And that just doesn't fly. Adult stem cells are very, you know, good to research, and a lot of people are studying them. But uh, scientists will not say that we can just study ad- adult stem cells and drop embryonic ones. They think that both are interesting, both are promising, and they're unwilling to shut down uh, a whole avenue of research prematurely. And yet that's what their religious right is apparently asking for.
0: Well, Chris, in, in New Scientist, where, of well, course, your, your analysis appeared, um uh, The October Eighth issue had a special section on fundamentalism, and a lot of that was about the war on science in the U.S. One section was titled "The Enemy at the Gates." Well, it referred to intelligent design as the 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 thin edge of the wedge with which a new world order of faith-based reasoning will take place. You you concluded in your book this was quite a concern too. Uh, How how scared are you by this prospect?
1: Well, you know, it's quite clear that we've had an anti-evolutionist movement in this country, a creationist movement for going on 100 years, and it shows no sign of uh, subsiding. Rather, it's quite ingenious, and it keeps evolving <laughs> into new forms, ironically. And the latest form is uh, intelligent design creationism. There's a lot of energy behind this. I don't expect it to go away anytime soon. I frankly think we're going to need a Supreme Court decision on this before uh, the intelligent design movement slows down. And assuming that, mo- that decision goes against them, then I just think that creationism will yet again evolve into another new form, and we'll have to see what that takes. But I don't see any hope that we're going to resolve this battle anywhere in the near future.
0: Well, Chris, in closing, what steps would you like to see people take to avoid uh, what some fear a Second Middle Ages coming upon us with the light of science being snuffed out?
1: Well, there's no one silver bullet answer, but one thing that I'm increasingly doing is I'm trying to get scientists active, because if anyone's going to defend the integrity of scientific information, it has to be the mainstream scientific community. And so I'm telling them that signing statements, denouncing the Bush administration is a great start, but they really need to get involved uh, in their communities, opposing anti-evolutionists. They really need to be much more invested in communicating scientific results and an understanding and appreciation of science to the public. Um, to make sure that the public is on board with them, university communities need to mobilize, get really active in defending the integrity of science as well. This is a natural place for that to happen. There's a lot of other reforms that we can talk about, but really I think the scientific community really has to step up here and get involved before it's too late.
0: My final comment, Chris, would be that you you note in the book that uh, this idea currently that uh, the news media, they give two opposing sides of a topic, then allege that by presenting you know, both sides of an issue, it's been covered adequately. That doesn't, really do, that doesn't really fit when you're talking about science.
1: Exactly. This is another reform solution that we can look at, is trying to do something about the way that journalists abuse the concept of balance in order to create a sense of false objectivity, which actually, in some cases, aids and abets the strategies of the people who are misusing science in the first place and who want 50-50 coverage for what is really an outlier or fringe claim. And so, for example, you know, pairing up evolution versus intelligent design in a 50/50 way is really distorting the state of scientific understanding. When there is really virtually no papers published in support of intelligent design in scientific literature, which is where scientific debates are properly um, adjudicated in the first place. So journalists need to not fall for these ploys, and they need to describe accurately what the scientific stand of something like intelligent design is, which is that it isn't science at all; it's religion.
0: We've been speaking with Chris Mooney about his book, The Republican War on Science. Chris, thank you so much for speaking with us, and good luck on the book tour. This is a good book. Yeah,
1: I really appreciate your interest. You're doing a great job. Thanks for having me. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? <laughs>
0: I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a short break.